Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Bose Church. We pray this message blesses and encourages you. If you don't belong to a local church, we would love to see you on Sunday morning. And if you've been with us here the last couple of months, you know we've been going through the book of Ephesians in a series that we have titled Worthy. Um, and the book of Ephesians is really split up into two sections. The first section, chapter one through three, talks about the beautiful blessings we have in God and the life we've been given through Jesus because of what he did on the cross. And then chapter four through six, Paul pivots and goes from talking about the life that we have to saying, now that you've been given this wonderful life, This is how you are to live that out. Um, And Pastor Tyler kicked off this section last week when he talked about the need for us as Christians to live in unity and be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of the church, and that the church is stronger when all of us who are uniquely gifted are a part of it. And what we're going to see today is Paul's going to take it from beyond being a part of the church, beyond your Sunday morning, and he's going to talk about your Monday through Saturday, how you're supposed to live in your day-to-day lives, because God cares about how we live Monday through Saturday, which gets to our big idea for today. You know, Paul is going to call the Ephesians and us to let go of our old sinful lifestyles, and he's going to call us to embrace living out the holy and righteous life as commanded and modeled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And really, I just have three ideas or points that I want to spend some time going over from the text today. I want to talk about why we live differently in our day-to-day lives, because I think that's important. I want to talk about how we logistically do that. And then Paul is actually going to end the second half of chapter 4 talking about what it actually looks like to live like Christ in your day-to-day. And there's going to be some hard challenges for us, but remember, Paul's giving this to us in love to give us life and call us to life that is truly joyful and peaceful. And so my first idea that I'd like to go into, we're going to reread here the first part of this, picking up in verse 17, and we're going to talk about the why we live differently. Um, You'll see Paul says, therefore I say this in testifying the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles lived in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves up Uh, to the various practices of every kind of impurity with desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And so when we look at this text, I believe Paul has put three reasons why we as Christians should live differently every single day when we compare our lifestyles to the world. And the first is we know Jesus. We have a proper perspective on life and eternity. The text is very, very clear. The world is darkened in their understanding. The way they live is, is absolutely futile. And I was sitting there this week and saying, is that actually true? And so I did a quick little Google search on quotes on the futility of life. And here are a few things that came up. Uh, Stephen R. Donaldson, he's an American fantasy novelist. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. He says, futility is the defining characteristic of life. F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, he wrote The Great Gatsby, which I'm sure most of us have read or heard about. He said, 
very few of the people who accentuate the futility of life remark on the futility of themselves. Perhaps they think that in proclaiming the evil of living, they somehow savage their own lives from ruin. But they do not. And then uh, Nietzsche, who's a famous German philosopher from the 1800s, says, underneath this reality in which we live and have our being, another and altogether different reality lies concealed. And that's just three. I found hundreds of them. There is this essence and there's this proof that the world is living with a darkened understanding. And this matters, perspective matters, because if you, do, if you take God and Jesus out of the equation, there is no moral standard. There is no moral standard. What that means is if there is no God, there is no eternity, and after you die, you are nothing. There's nothing beyond this. There is no right or wrong. So it doesn't matter if you lived kind and graciously, you gave, or you were Hitler and an absolute tyrant and murderer. It doesn't matter. There's nothing beyond this world. And what I found is nobody really, really believes that. We all have a moral standard. And the question is, who and what is setting that? But as believers, it's very clear that that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard of him, because you were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. We know that God created everything, he's redeeming everything, and there is something beyond this world. And so that perspective changes how we live. We don't have to worry about figuring out what our purpose is. God has given us our purpose, and he's giving us a hope to look forward to beyond this world. And so that changes how we live. That's the first reason. The second thing we see from the text is we have experienced the love of Jesus. We have motivation to live life differently. You see here in the text, it says the world has hardness of their hearts. They have rejected Jesus. They have given themselves over to their desires. We haven't done that as the church. We have experienced the love of God, and we love him. He is our all-encompassing, beautiful Lord and Savior. We haven't given ourselves up to our desires. We have given ourselves up to Jesus. He is our Lord. And this matters because experiencing God's love, the gospel motivates where the law can't. And we see this very clearly in two stories in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18 and 19. Luke 18, we see a man, the rich young ruler. He's young, he's powerful, and he's got more money in his bank than probably any of us can even imagine. He's got everything the world could offer. And I think he actually has an earnest desire to follow Jesus. He wants to fulfill and complete the law perfectly. But he knows something's lacking, and he goes and talks with Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great request, and it's a great question. God goes after his heart. He says, get rid of all your resources, give to the poor, come and follow me. We see he can't do it. He walks away sadly. And then immediately after that, in Luke 18, we get to meet Zacchaeus, the tax collector. If you've been in Sunday school, you know he's the little man who was up in the tree. But the reality is, is he's somebody who took advantage of people and extorted people to get money. And yet he experiences Jesus and the love of Jesus in such a radical way that Jesus, when he's having dinner with him, says, salvation has entered this household. And Zacchaeus' heart is completely changed. And we see that he goes and repays every single person he defrauded four times what he took from him. Now, the Old Testament law requires paying back 120% what you defraud from somebody. Zacchaeus gave 400%. And it wasn't out of some desire to fulfill the law. He experienced the love of Jesus in such a real way that it motivated change. 
And that's how it should be for us if we've truly experienced the love of Christ. So that's the second reason we live differently. The third reason we live differently is we've received the Holy Spirit. I mean, you see this here in verse 30. It says, we were sealed by him, the Holy Spirit, for the day of redemption. We have been given the power to live life differently. And I think this is important because you give the gospel to unbelievers, you give God's word to believers. And there's two important takeaways for that. I think the first is we need to be really careful as the church not to hold unbelievers to the standards of God's word as far as holy living. It is not rational to expect them to live regenerated lives without being saved and receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what gives us the power to live a transformed life. And so our focus, Paul says it here, assuming you know Christ, right? He's like, I'm drawing a line in the sand. If you know Christ, you should be living differently for the reasons I've listed here. But if you don't, stop here, go back and reread the first three chapters of Ephesians. Look at the blessings. God, he's chosen you. He wants to save you. Christ died on the cross for your sins. The Holy Spirit will seal you. You were in a situation where you were spiritually dead. You had no hope of life, and yet God in his love made a way for you when Jesus died on the cross. He's saying, shift back. And so we need to be careful. Give the gospel to unbelievers. Don't try just to change their behavior. They need the love of Christ. They need the gospel. They don't need a list of rules. But if you've been saved, he's saying you have the power of the Holy Spirit, the power living in you where you can live a transformed life. You have the power where you never have to sin again. And so if that's you, now we have to ask the question, okay, I have this power, I have these motivations, how do we actually do that? And so for that, we'll go back to the text here. Picking it up in verse 22, Paul says, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteousness and purity of the truth. So what we see is the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, if you've been saved and you want to now live in a way that models Christ, this is the process in which you live. And I think we have a slide for this. You need to put off your old self. You need to renew your mind on God's word and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. And then you need to put on your new self. And actually, if you have some time, go read Isaiah chapter one. This is not a new idea. God actually basically says verbatim the same thing to the Israelites. And the reality is God's always desired for his people to live differently in the world so they can see him through his people. And he gives us a process for how we actually do this. And he expects us to filter every single aspect of our life through this. You filter your emotions through this. You filter your speech through this. You filter your dreams and ambitions through this. You filter your marriage, how you raise your kids. You filter your hobbies through this. You filter how you work and handle money through this. This is the process that you put things through to change and transform your lifestyle and to be like Christ. And I have a few observations on this. Uh, the first is you'll notice all of those are present tense. Put on, renewed, put off. It's this concept that this needs to be a daily discipline. Uh, and I think it's the best illustration I found on this is if I'm getting ready for work on a Monday morning, I have to take off my dirty clothes, I need to go shower, brush my teeth, and then put on my new clothes. If, if I'm going to meet the expectations of my boss, I need to do that and be presentable. 
If I do that Monday, I'm good for Monday. If I don't do it Tuesday, they'll probably get away with it. By Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, certainly, I'm going to be smelly, I'm going to be a mess, and my boss is not going to be pleased. What God is telling us in the same way, that's how we need to view our spiritual lives. There needs to be this daily discipline and intent of taking off our corrupted flesh, our old self, renewing our mind on God's word, putting on the virtues and characteristics of Christ. It's a daily discipline. Um, But as I was studying this, I had the question, I was like, does this process actually work? Does it actually work or is this just Christianese? So I did. Uh, somebody else had the same question back in 2021. There was a group that you know surveyed a bunch of people and just wanted to see what is the impact that daily Bible reading and interaction actually has on people's lifestyles. And so they surveyed 40,000 people, ages 80 or 8 to 80, either before that or after that. I don't know if these stats are applicable, but 8 to 80. Um, and they basically asked them, how often do you read your Bible a week? And then fill out a survey of, of certain lifestyle things. And what they found is people who read their Bible one to three days a week see little to no change in how they live. But people who read their Bible four days or more per week, they started seeing dramatic changes. Uh, we have the results there. Uh, people who read their or engage their Bible four days or more per week see feelings of loneliness drop 30%. Anger issues in their life drop 32%. Bitterness in their various relationships drop 40%. Alcoholism drop 57%. Sex outside of marriage drop 68%. People feeling spiritually stagnant drop 60%. Uh, People viewing pornography drop 61%. And Christians who are reading their Bible four days or more a week saw a significant jump and people who share their faith by over 200%. I mean, these stats are eye-opening, and they make a compelling case for that process. Not only does it work, but we need to be doing this if we have any hope of living transformed lives in Christ. It's got to be a daily discipline. Uh, If we can go back to the process here, the second observation that I had um, is that what you'll see here is Paul could have very easily said, put off and put on could have given us a list of do's and don'ts. But that center one, renew your mind on God's truth, I think is so important. Because what you see is a changed life flows directly out of the beliefs that we have about God. That is the key. Um, And this is important because living a holy, reformed, transformed life is not a byproduct of you trying harder or being a better person. It's just not. Well, it requires some discipline on spending time. You have to be disciplined about making the time to be with God every day. It's the Holy Spirit who's transforming your heart. And ultimately, if you're not living out the Christian lifestyle in a certain way, it's because there's some belief about God that you're not believing. And the key is you have to renew your mind on that truth. Um, I'll give you a couple examples, which we'll go over in detail here in a little bit. It talks about generosity. If you can't be generous, as the Bible's instructed, it's probably because you're not understanding the belief of how generous a God we actually have. And if you can't handle your anger appropriately, you probably don't understand and believe that you've really been forgiven in such a radical way. And so it's absolutely critical that we understand that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to change and transform us. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of believing more about who God is and what he's done for us. And then my last observation before we get into the specific lifestyle characteristics 
um, as you'll see here in verse 24, it says, one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Uh, I think this is such a kindness from Paul because what we're about to see uh, is he's going to go through some very specific lifestyle put-offs, put-ons, and reality is these are going to be hardcore challenges. Um, I would be shocked if you're sitting here today and we go through these and you don't feel some conviction or don't feel like you're being called out. And Paul is reminding us, he's saying, I'm not trying to be legalistic with you. I'm not trying to take life away from you. I'm telling you, your beloved Lord and Savior, this is how he lived. And this is who you're proclaiming to love. And I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you up. Shouldn't you wanna be like Christ? And if these attributes are truly what's gonna give you life, shouldn't you want these? He's giving us this beautiful reminder before he's gonna go into what, are, what will be some hard challenges for us and some things that we're gonna to need to evaluate our life on. And so this will get to the third, third idea and thing I, we're gonna spend most of our time this morning is what are the put-offs and put-on characteristics and beliefs that we're supposed to embody within our Christian lifestyle? So we'll pick it up here in verse 25. It says, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So what, what we see here is Paul's gonna give us five characteristics to put off, five characteristics to replace those with. Uh, and the first one we see is he's gonna tell us to put off falsehood. Your translation may say lying, and to put on truth telling. And at first glance, it can be easy to say, oh, Paul is saying, you preachers, teachers, when you go up there, proclaim the true and only gospel. And yes, that's absolutely true. But we have to remember, that's not Paul's audience here. It's not the pulpit he's talking to. It's the pews. It's the people sitting out there. It's all of you. You are supposed to be people who proclaim truth. And Pastor Tyler preached on this concept in detail last week. But as a reminder, this is important for two reasons. When we look at verse 14, uh, it tells us, we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness and the techniques of deceit. And so it's important for you to be truth tellers because what Satan's trying to do is infiltrate the church and weaken it. We're in a spiritual war. He can't defeat Jesus. Jesus already conquered death, defeated him on the cross. And if people hear and respond to the true gospel, they're saved. There's nothing Satan can do. But if he can get into the church and get lies to spread and get people to put their faith into something that's not true, he can at least stop those people from being a part of the victorious side. And so part of that protection is the body, the church, being truth tellers among themselves. Because the reality is I can come up here and preach for 35, 40 minutes, but a lot of the conversations and interactions that are happening within the church are happening on a personal level amongst you. And so if I'm preaching truth up here, we're spewing the wisdom of the world, the lies of the enemy out there. 
the church is getting weakened and is less effective in their mission. But the second reason, uh, in ver- which we see in verse 15, it says, but speaking the truth in love, let each grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. Ultimately, this goes back to what Pastor Tyler taught. The church is given teachers, pastors, shepherds for the purpose of building you up to go and what? Fulfill your calling, which is go into the nations and make disciples. How do you make disciples? You, are, you proclaim the gospel and you speak truth. So ultimately, we are all meant to be disciple makers and to do that effectively and live out your calling, which is the whole reason that we're going through this part in, in the text today. You have to be truth tellers. It's the absolute foundation for living out your calling. And not just on a Sunday, in your Monday through Saturday, in your interactions with your neighbors, in your interactions with whoever you come across. So that's the first lifestyle characteristic. I'm not going to go into detail because Pastor Tyler preached on that last week. Um, the second one is to put off unrighteous anger and to put on righteous anger. Uh, and what we see is when the world gets angry, their anger is explosive. It, it's violent. It's yelling. Um, it's destructive. It looks to take justice into their own hands, and it's long-lasting. How many here know somebody who's been angry and they've held on to it for years? Yeah, well, I, w- I would argue most of us. And the longer anger sits there and festers and grows, the more you're tempted to listen to the lies of the enemy. He's going to come in and say, you should, you know, that person wronged you. You are right to be angry. You should take justice into your own hand and get even with them. You ever heard that term, get even? I mean, that is the world's way of handling anger. And the spiritual reason we say we need to put on righteous anger and handle it differently is the enemy is going to use anger as an opportunity to get you to sin and live like the world. And you go back, Cain and Abel, right? Cain killed Abel because he was angry and he bought into the lies of Satan and he killed him. He didn't just kill him. He didn't even feel bad for it. He tried to make a justification to God. I mean, that's how dangerous unrighteous anger is. It, it will kill and destroy those around you. Um, but I do find it curious here. The text doesn't say don't be angry or it's a sin to be angry. Now, I would argue it is wrong to be indifferent to evil that's happening around you. You're sitting here and you're looking at thousands of babies being aborted and killed, and it doesn't put some anger in your belly. I would, I would say that's wrong. If you look at the tens, I think it's maybe even hundreds, maybe even millions of kids that are getting siphoned through the sex trade, it should make you angry. And you look at the news and you see wars and rumors of wars and you see innocent people just being killed, it should make you angry. And when you see your loved ones caught up in habitual sin that is wrecking havoc in their lives, you should be angry. But we handle our anger differently. First is it says, be angry and do not sin. You're angry, you go to God and you give it to him. And you trust him to bring justice to the situation in his perfect timing and in his perfect plan. And then step two, it says, you don't let that anger sit there and fester. If it's sitting in there and it's growing and you feel like you're, you're feeling more and more tempted to take justice, you need to go to whoever you're angry with and you need to confront them and you need to have the conversation. I'll give you an example. I had a friend a few months ago and we were having a conversation about something, and we actually needed to come up with a solution. We were both very intense and heated about the recommended approach to getting to the solution. And after about 30 minutes, you know, we, we came up with a plan, um, 
But I went home that night, and I started feeling a little angry, but I was like, okay, well, I'll sleep it off. Woke up the next morning, and that anger had grown significantly. I had two options. I could sit there, let it grow, let my thoughts about that person change, which, by the way, how you think about somebody eventually is how you're going to treat them. So it's very careful to take your thoughts captive. But I had made the decision, prayed to God, and then I called this person up Saturday morning. It's the first thing I did. And I said, hey, I'm angry. I felt discounted. I didn't feel like my opinion was valued. I feel like you don't respect me. And it's making me furious. I just want to confess that and say I'm sorry and hope you can forgive me. Well, and here's something radical. He says the same thing to me. He was angry at me. And he had frustration. And then he confesses. Uh, and then, you know, it's just this beautiful time in the morning where we confess, we forgave. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, our friendship is so significantly stronger because of that. The enemy wanted to use that anger as an opportunity to tear us apart and wreak havoc. And yet God's way of handling anger provides healing and strengthens the bonds of the church. And so this is how we need to handle anger. Um, our third truth we see here is we're told to put off stealing and greed put on hard work and generosity. And this might be the most uncomfortable one we talk about today, but we're gonna dive right into it. The world's way of working and handling money is different. And it's what you're being, it's what you're hearing in the news, it's what you're being taught in schools. You are less concerned with how you work and more concerned with what you get from your work. You need to climb that corporate ladder, you need to save X percentage, you need to be making money. I mean, you go on Instagram, you go through the reels. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when they talk about Here's how you make wealth, and you, here's how you have to handle these situations. I mean, there's this focus on greed and accumulating more treasures and accumulating more comforts. And what we see, the reality of all of Scripture, is God called us to work. We were always designed to work. And I think maybe for some of us, what we need to hear is, you know, God's less concerned with where you work and more concerned with are you working, because that's a big issue amongst our young adults in society today. So you need to work. Once you have the job, you are to work as hard as you can and with such honesty and integrity that even if it doesn't produce good earthly results, you're doing it not because you are trying to accumulate as much treasure as possible. What you realize is work is your mission field. We see that in Titus. We are to work hard and with honesty and integrity so that we make the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ look attractive. That's why we work how we work. And God has a purpose in it. And the reality is, at least in America, the average adult is going to spend 25 to 35% of their adult life working. Maybe for some of you that's discouraging. I'm sorry. But the reality is you're going to spend a lot of time there. And so it's one of your premier mission fields. And it doesn't matter if you're sharing the gospel if you are a lazy worker who's unethical. Because they're not going to care what you have to say. So we are to work hard. We are to work honestly. And this, honestly, this verse here, when they're talking about this, totally transformed how I handle my work. I mean, it's, it's, if it sinks in, this will change how you work. And then ultimately what we see is we work hard and we work with integrity, not just to share the gospel, but to be generous. And that is countercultural. And it brings up the question, why is generosity so important? And I think there's really a practical reason and a spiritual reason for that. First, the practical. We've been called to the Great Commission. Um, and Jesus tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I would even take it beyond that. The resources that the laborers are giving for the purpose of the Great Commission are few. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. I, I met a man, John Reinhardt, this summer. He talks about this concept of gospel patrons. He made such a compelling case where he said, every 
tremendous move of the gospel in the last 2,000 plus years has been on the back of generous givers. That's just the reality. Does God need our money? No. But for whatever reason, practically, we're, we're generosity flows, the gospel flows. And that gets to really the spiritual reason. Why does generosity matter? Because the gospel is a message about what a generous God we have. That is what the gospel is. You were dead. You deserve nothing. You could not earn your salvation. And yet you have a God who, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. He gave up everything for you. And you know what's really crazy? He didn't just give you life. He's giving you internal rewards. It says we will be exalted with Jesus. And then I was reading in Revelation the other day, when he comes back, first thing Jesus is going to do is he's going to serve us. If anybody else said that, we'd have to stone them because it sounds ludicrous. But that's how generous and loving our God is. And the reality is, because remember, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to unbelievers here. When the church isn't generous with their finances, it undermines our message. We're going out there telling them that Jesus is worth giving up everything for. But then if our lifestyle, the way we handle our finances is greed versus generosity, how in the world do we expect people to give up whatever they have to follow Jesus? It just doesn't make rational sense. And it gets me fired up because I have fallen into this problem. How many people have I known haven't heard the message of the gospel or responded to it how they should have because I was so focused on accumulating more treasures and comforts. Sometimes it's just our focus is too much on money and not on the gospel. So it's important because generosity is the gospel. The gospel is generosity, and so it needs to be a part of our lives. The fourth thing we see here uh, is Paul is telling us to put off corrupt talk and to put on edifying talk. And so... Corrupt talk, uh, it can encompass a lot of things. It can be vulgarities, taking the Lord's name in vain. It can be unkind words, which is speaking the truth but being a jerk about it. Uh, It can be gossip, talking about somebody behind their back. It can be slander, telling outright lies about people. You see that in our political realm. You see that in corporate America. And I'd argue even, I was at high school at one point. You see it in high school. I mean, this corrupt talk is the way of the world. And I'd like to say it's not present in the church, but I think we all, we've all seen gossip and corrupt talk in, in the church. And what Paul's saying is we need to shift from that. We need to be people who are encouragers. And that's important because, once again, it comes back to the spiritual warfare that we're in. Satan is trying to get in here. And if people hear and respond to the gospel, they're saved. But if he can discourage us, from sharing the gospel and living out our faith, people have no opportunity to respond. And so that's his goal and objective. And he uses corrupt talk to infiltrate the church and discourage the saints, those who are doing ministry. But God says one of the ways he gives grace to his troops is through his people saying encouraging words. I mean, Paul knows this better than anybody. He gave his life to Christ, and the Jews who were trying to kill the Christians were no longer his friends. Christians didn't really want to welcome him in because, dude, Paul, you've just been killing us. But Barnabas comes beside him, encourages him, and strengthens him. And and so Paul understands the necessity for this. It's a way that God gives grace to his people through the encouraging words. But Paul gives it another spiritual reason here. When, When you're having corrupt talk, gossip, slander, unkind words, even vulgarities, 
what he's saying is that grieves the Holy Spirit. Grieves the Holy Spirit. This would be like, just to preface, this has never happened, will never happen. Bruce Kathy would never happen. Kristen never happened. It would be like if I took my wife out on a date and the entire time I am talking about other women, how great they are, how beautiful they are, I prefaced it. This has never happened, would never happen. Um, but if I did that to her, it would hurt her so deeply and I would deserve a punch in the face, multiple punches. And what Paul is saying is that is what it's like to the Holy Spirit who lives within you. When corrupt talk comes out of your mouth, that's like giving praise and worship to Satan. That, you know, corrupt talk doesn't glorify God. And that grieves the Holy Spirit, just like it would if I took my wife out and was talking about other women. And so that should motivate us to get our speech under control. It's important. And then the last thing we see here is we're told to put off bitterness and rage, put on kindness and forgiveness. Once again, this has been kind of all encompassed here, but the world's ways are self-centered and destructive. It's just the way they handle their emotions. They're all about self, and so when you're about yourself, you'll do whatever you can, whether it's destructive, violent, to protect it and get what you want. But as Christians who have experienced the gospel, we know we give our life away. We no longer are looking to be bitter or rageful or violent. We want to be embodied by the kindness, tenderness, and the forgiveness that Jesus had. We put on the Lord's virtues. And I think just as an encouragement to all of us here, you know, this is important for us because I think of us as leaders. We do our best to serve you. But we don't always get it right. Sometimes we screw up. Sometimes we're not organized. Sometimes we say the wrong thing. Sometimes you needed an edifying word, and whatever reason, you didn't. You didn't get encouraged, and you're hurt. And that hurt can lead to destructive things within the church if it's not dealt with. And we need to be willing to forgive each other. We need to be willing to be kind with each other, just like my story with my friend. Because once again, this, this goes back to the spiritual war that we're in. Satan is trying to make the church disunified and ineffective. And these virtues are critical. We cannot be a strong, healthy, and united church if bitterness, rage, and violence, and self-centeredness are, at our, are in our hearts. We need to be a church that's kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving with each other. And if we do that, Satan has nothing he can do to us. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Uh, and it's critically important. And I would just say, you know, these five things, it's a challenge for all of you this week, every one of these is a sermon. I don't have the time to unpack these in the detail that they deserve. But I would encourage you to ask God where, when I look at these five virtues, am I falling short? Spend some time renewing your mind on that this week and ask the Holy Spirit, help me believe whatever that spiritual doctrine or truth is that I need to believe to have that changed in me, to be committed to it. And the fact is, it's a daily discipline, and so we never are hitting all of these perfectly. It's something we need to continually do. And that would be my encouragement this week. Spend some time going through these, renewing your mind on them. And so in closing, you know, we live differently because we know Jesus, we've experienced his love, and we've received the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the process on how we live differently. We put off our old self, we renew our mind, and we put on our new self. And ultimately, he's given us the five key virtues 
that these embody our life, we will live a transformed life in Christ. And just in closing, I was thinking this week about the story of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and scholars debate how many people were actually taken into exile in Babylon. Uh, it, most people tend to agree it's around 10,000. But if we were conservative, and let's just say 1,000 Jews got taken to Babylon. And Babylon's method was to take people from different races and cultures and assimilate them into a Babylonian culture. So they would live like the Babylonians. That's how you got you know, the Jewish culture out of Jerusalem. That's how anybody they conquer, that's how you get that old lifestyle away. You assimilate them. And all of these came from the same place. They came from Jerusalem. They all had the same spiritual background. And even if you had 1,000 people, the only thing we see in the text is four people who were willing to stay on the virtues of Christ and live those out in a Babylonian way. Four out of a thousand, that's less than 1%. And what we see is through those four people, they got to experience Jesus, every single one of them. Jadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to see him and experience him uh, in the fire. And ultimately, Daniel has six chapters of visions that are blowing his mind away from Jesus. Um, and I think most of us want that experience with Jesus, but we don't want to live that transformed life and stand firmly on the virtues of Christ. I would say that is more applicable today, or as applicable today as it was in Babylonia. Our culture wants us to assimilate and live like the world. And God's saying we are to live differently than the Gentiles, the world. Why? Because we have a holy calling. At the end of the day, we live differently, and how we live matters because our purpose is to share the gospel. And God tells us these virtues help our gospel message be more effective and help bring people into salvation. So why do you live differently? Because we're out there to save souls. We're out there to bring them to Jesus so that they can have life. And if you're not doing that, it's getting in the way of your mission. So with that, let's pray.